Welcome to Cabbages and Kings, a podcast for readers of science fiction and fantasy. I'm your host, Jonah Sutton Morse. My name is Naman Gobert Talahan. I'm a science fiction and fantasy writer. My first novel, The Root, came out June 2016. And I've had a couple short stories published since, and my second book will be out next year. I usually start by asking people just to talk a little bit about their history with the genre. How did you get into science fiction and fantasy? Is it most of what you read? Is there other stuff that you read? It's definitely most of what I read when it comes to fiction. Um, It's mostly science fiction, fantasy, and maybe some mystery thrown in, and occasionally a historical novel. But it's definitely my main uh, fictional read. But I read a lot of nonfiction, too. Okay. I think that one of my things with like traditional quote unquote mainstream fiction is it's always like something traumatic that happened to someone. And I'm like, oh, if I'm going to be read someone's trauma, I'd rather read a nonfiction account than like okay, yeah. uh, a fictional version. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I first got into science fiction and fantasy. I think I was, I always read a lot. Um, growing up, I was an only child and my parents like were busy with work and stuff. So I read constantly. And I think I was in probably seventh grade when, like, the librarian introduced me to science fiction and fantasy because I had read through, like, Agatha Christie and Christopher Pike and all this. Okay. And she gave me, I can never remember which book it was because I read two science fiction books back to back, and it was Joanna Russ's The Female Man and Sally Ann Gearhart Wanderground. And I never remember which I read first. But those were sort of like my first introduction to science fiction. Those are interesting seventh grade librarian handing to a kid books. That yeah. seems pretty awesome. Yeah, she I can't even remember her name now, but she was a great librarian. I I mean, I think I got bullied a lot uh in middle school. So during breaks and stuff I would often spend them in the library just reading. Mm-hmm. So she sort of like looked out for me a little bit, I think. My sitting in the library just reading science fiction books, because at that point, I, I like that was the shelf that I went to, but it was it was Ender's Game and it was Robert Asprin's myth books, which are not quite the same. Well, I you know, I didn't read uh, I did read the myth books later. I got really obsessed with them. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think there there's because I used to work at Borderlands Books in San Francisco um, and I still work for them sometimes, but I used when I worked more regularly, I would get these conversations about how can you not have read everything in Ho- that Highland's ever written? And I would be like, well, I've read everything Joanna Russ has ever written. Like, that's my old school science mm-hmm. fiction. Mm-hmm. So was it mostly science fiction for you? It was mostly science fiction for a while, and then I sort of dived headlong into fantasy because I started to find these fantastic tales where people were outsiders, and that really resonated with me. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I dived into oh, Anne McCaffrey, mm-hmm. Mercedes Lackey, Tanith Lee. Like I dived into these like intense fantasy worlds really hardcore, and would just like read every book I could get my hands on. Mm-hmm. And was, I mean, you are a novelist and a short story writer. Was that always kind of part of the like? I'm reading this and I want to make make this and do this? Or uh, did that come later? I think it was always a part of it, like, but not consciously. Mm-hmm. My mother likes to tease me because I did 
I made a book in like seventh grade and got like honorable mention in this weird school wide thing. But even then, I don't think I thought of like being an author as a career. Mm -hmm. I'm first generation Ethiopian on my father's side. So there was a lot of like writing wasn't even considered a job you could do. Like it was very much like you should be a lawyer because you like to argue. Or you should be an accountant because you're good with numbers. Like there was no creative options that were ever floated by me. So I think I knew I wanted to be a writer fairly early, but it took me until like halfway through my undergrad to really sort of claim that and switch my major and like do what I wanted to do. I asked Naman about any other key moments in his reading history. My interest started to become more and more pointed as I grew up. In high school, I remember like searching online for just lists of GLBTQ science fiction and fantasy because that's what I wanted. Mm -hmm. You know, I was getting this awareness that I was not straight and I wanted to read that in my favorite genre. So I remember like having to go to the library and do interlibrary loans from like libraries that were like two counties over so I could get The Dancers of Arun by like Elizabeth A. Lynn Mm -hmm. and stuff like that. When I was an undergrad in San Francisco, I actually got to meet um, Nalo Hopkinson for the first time. And her book, Brown Girl in the Ring, was really seminal for me. Because up till then, I hadn't even really thought about race in science fiction and fantasy. I don't know why, really. But I picked up her book randomly, and it was amazing. And there was a cover quote from Octavia Butler... And that's how I got introduced to Octavia Butler was like through the cover quote on Nala Hopkinson's book. Cause I was like, who is this woman? Mm-hmm. And then I started to really read um, a lot of science fiction and fantasy that featured people of color. But I always wanted, it always seemed, especially with early science fiction, that you got one or the other. Your main character was either queer or they were of color. If, if those were focused on at all, mm-hmm. but you could never have both. Exactly. Since I was both, I was like, I, I eventually sort of was like, that's what I want to write. I want to write like queer people of color as my main characters because, you know, we're out there and we deserve these stories as much as anyone else. So that sort of became a really big point of my writing. I didn't even realize until I got older, well, I realized it a little bit, was that I wasn't reading almost any science fiction or fantasy that was written by men. Like, I had a few that I would read, but since I couldn't find brown people or queer people in in my early days, Mm -hmm. I identified with female main characters because I think a lot of the tropes in, like, fantasy, you know, dangerous outsider taps into their power, you know, saves the world, becomes beloved by their nation. Mm Mm-hmm. And I think when there was a female main character and that was still the trope, they still had to deal a lot of times her outsider status came from her being female. Mm -hmm. And that was something that was never going to change. So I could at least identify with that. I was like, you have this identity that no one wants to engage with and now they're forced to engage with you. And so I could see myself there a little bit. Mm -hmm. So yeah, there was a long era where I was just like, yeah, I don't read male main characters or male authors and that since changed but like there was a decade there where i was just like no i'm fine (laughs) i ended up somewhat intentionally and somewhat not intentionally last year just almost all of 
the authors I read were women. And there were a lot more black authors than I'd ever, yeah. I'd ever read before. And I found myself after that, like late in the year, I picked up this white guy writing a story and it was, it was a good story and I enjoyed it. And also the treatment of women and the way that women in his story were existing in relation to each other and in their community felt in this guy's story much flatter than what I had gotten used to. Yeah, I think it's one of those things that once you sort of see the shape of it, it's very hard to unsee. I invited Nauman on the episode to talk about the science fiction canon, and we started by talking about some of the problems and how canon has accreted, and also the problem of canon formation, how publishers and convention panelists in particular create and shape our canon. I think that a lot of people use the term canon to describe authors who are old, dead, white, and male. And it's a very it's a very tough thing to talk with with people who have had this really intense connection to what they think of as like the be all and end all of science fiction canon. You have to have read Ringworld by Larry Niven. You have to have read D is for Zachariah. Like there's a certain list that they think you have to have read and a lot of those books have really problematic elements when it comes to the treatment of women or people of color or queer people, if they exist at all. Mm -hmm. And I think that people are very quick to say, oh, but it's a classic, so that doesn't matter. And it does, because if you're thinking of this as like science fiction canon, then this is who you're passing on to the future generation as what they should be reading. Mm-hmm. And so you're passing on these ideas without any nuance, without conversation, without even acknowledging them by just brushing it off as he was a man of his time. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, but that ignores the fact that there were people in that time doing better and doing more. They just didn't become popular or as popular as these authors. I recently tried to read Zelazny's Princes of Amber series, mm -hmm. which I'd never read. And the first book sort of fell into my lap. And I was like, oh, I'll give this a read. And I really enjoyed Amnesia is one of my least favorite tropes in fiction. But I really enjoyed how he did it. And then I got a couple chapters in where they were talking about how they were all fighting for this crown. And I realized that without any conversation or nuance, it was just assumed within the text that none of the women could take the crown. Yep. Despite the fact that they were sisters, full-blooded, they were princesses. Everyone just assumed without even thinking about it. They're like, of course a woman won't rule. And it was just stuff like that that would hit me. And I'm like, that's actually a pretty important point. If you are selling this as canon, you're going to have a lot of young girls who read this. And if they're young enough, they'll just take that as gospel. Mm -hmm. I don't think there should be a huge science fiction canon, first of all. I don't think there should be anything we refer to as science fiction canon. I think there should be personal canons. I know that I have a very specific personal canon of fantasy and science fiction that I'm like, these are the books I think you should read. You know, I think you should read Fledgling by Octavia Butler. I think you should read Brown Girl in the Ring by Nala Hopkinson. I think you should read Joanna Russ's The Female Man, or even better, Joanna Russ's We Who Are About To. Makes notes. Oh my God, We Who Are About To is such a traumatizing novella 
uh-huh. but it's so it's basically a take on the cold equations where a group of people tra- crash land on a planet and there is no hope for rescue whatsoever and how this modern society slowly devolves into a patriarchal like rape culture and only the main character sees it coming she's like no something bad's about to happen among us so it's it's a it's a happy and uplifting book <laughs> oh yes <laughs> Yes. Oh, when I when I need my mood turned around. When you go back to like these books written by Joanna Russ and stuff, you realize that what you're seeing is a perspective that's ignored. Like they can't pretend that the world is going to turn out all right because as women, they're well aware that there are all these things that could happen to them specifically because they're women. Right. I also asked Nauman if we move away from the idea of canon, how do we preserve a sense of the history of the genre, since science fiction and fantasy do so often look back at what has come before? And maybe does getting rid of canon open up a sense of the genre? Part of that is bringing in more people of different backgrounds when you're talking about when you're talking about the history, when you're talking about whatever subgenre mm-hmm. to expand the ideas beyond sort of like the quote unquote most important two or three. It's like when you talk about cyberpunk, uh, people automatically go to William Gibson. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, well, what about Melissa Scott, who's been writing cyberpunk forever and has amazing cyberpunk novels? Like she needs to be talked about as well. Mm-hmm. George Alec Effinger. Yeah wrote his his that first book is amazing it's like a great i remember there's a scene in that book where the main character is dating a trans woman who's also a sex worker and the sort of consciousness around that Mm -hmm. is i mean it's not perfect but it's amazing for a book written in like the 90s that there's no sex shaming that there's no um like shaming around gender it's it's a really interest. I mean, there's there's an incident that happens later on that's really fucked up, but it's acknowledged as fucked up. And so I think when you have people on these panels talking about these are the books you should read, you need to have people on there who will bring up books that uh, that aren't like these are the top three science f- cyberpunk novels or these are the top three blah 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 novels because I mm-hmm. think that shuts down the conversation. Mm-hmm. When you get to a panel and someone's like. Well, if we're going to talk about canon, we have to talk about Heinlein and Clark and Bradbury and focus on them completely. Mm-hmm. You sort of shut it down from other people being like, oh, but what about, you know, Gene Rabb or what about Susie McKee Charnis? You sort of don't allow people to have have that space to say, yeah, we can talk about your favorites, but we've talked about those a lot. How about we talk about these other things? Mm-hmm. How about we talk about Door into Ocean or, you know, The Shore of Women or something like that? It's interesting because I feel like we lost a really big science fiction author this year. We lost Sherry Tepper recently. Yeah. Who I had I had never read and had heard. Like, I was sort of vaguely aware of her name, but not much more than that. Her, woof, Grass is, that book will mess you up. (laughs) It's great, (laughs) but it will mess you up. 
I don't feel like the outpouring was what I expected. Mm-hmm. I felt like a lot of people were like, you know, feminist sci-fi author dies. And I'm just like, but she, you can't categorize her like that. She has been in, she's written over, I think, 60 novels. She's been in the business for decades mm-hmm. to just like define her as a feminist writer and not as a science fiction writer who focused on feminist themes, maybe, mm-hmm. but should be acknowledged as one of the canon. I think that happens to a lot of women authors, and it drives me crazy, is that they're huge and they have all these books out, but as they die, people forget about them, and the books don't stay in print. I mean, here's the thing about all publishing, not just science fiction and fantasy. Um, no matter how diverse the books are getting, people at the top are still mostly older, white, straight men. Mm-hmm. And so in many cases, they are the ones who decide what gets pushed harder, what gets you know an anniversary release, what mm-hmm. gets a, a special trilogy release, what, what are the books that we canonize in this way because I think that's yeah. part of canon too. Yeah. Is like when once you get a special edition of a book, everyone's like, oh, well, yeah, this obviously is something really important. Yeah. What is still in print, and and in fact, exactly. what is getting what is getting something new and being brought back to the attention. Yeah. Exactly. Joe Clayton is a great example. She was a fabulous science fiction writer. Um, I read a lot of her when I was younger. You cannot find her books in print. I think now Open Road Science Fiction has started reprinting her stuff finally. Mm -hmm. But for years, you couldn't find her stuff anywhere. And this was a woman who had an 11-book series about, like, a psychic woman who was fighting psychic spiders who wanted to steal her crown. Like, this was a (laughs) entertaining, entertaining series. And those books are really thin. So there were certain parts of me that was like, I'm surprised no one's put these together in an omnibus to sort of like put this out there and be like, hey, here's a classic of science fiction that you haven't read. Yeah. But no one decides that. Instead, we get, you know, the um, like the 15th edition of American Gods by Neil Gaiman. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, did we need that new edition? Really? What more can you have to say? We've had 20 already. Mm-hmm. But that's how things sort of get canonized as like really important that they need to keep getting to a new generation. And the people who decide that, I don't even think you can talk about it being purposeful, but the people who decide that just decide on what they connect to and what they like. And for a lot of them, that is white men written by straight white men. We've talked about canon formation in the context of books that stay on shelves, but I also asked about conventions, the times when authors and fans of science fiction and fantasy get together to talk about and hash out what the genre is. We also talked about author and fan reactions to criticisms of problematic representation in books. I'm a little skewed in that the convention I mostly go to um, is WizCon, Mm -hmm. which is a feminist science fiction convention that has really done a lot to sort of make themselves more diverse in the last five years. Mm -hmm. And so there are definitely more interesting conversations happening there. There are like a lot of up and coming uh, women of color authors and queer authors that go there and like get their stuff sort of out into the community. Mm -hmm. So I think there's definitely a difference when you go to certain conventions. Right. 
at the same time, I went to Worldcon a few years ago, and I was on a bunch of panels, which were lovely. But me and my friends looked through the the panel listing, and there were quite a few panels that we just looked at each other and were like, uh, isn't this, couldn't we just call this panel white men talking about stuff? <laughs> there was an author one time, we were in a panel where someone was giving a speech on her book. The person giving the speech did not know she was going to show up. And she basically was like, let's talk about race and gender in this book. Mm -hmm. And what I actually liked was that the author commented when it was time for like interaction was like, you're totally right. I could have done much better in terms of like what I did with race in this book. And it's a problem. And I appreciated her sort of acknowledging that. But then you still had a fan in the audience who was like, well, what do you think she's supposed to do? Blah, 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 blah. And everyone's like, the author just said what she would have done. Yeah. Why do you feel the need to defend her so vigorously when she's okay with this criticism? Yeah. And I've seen that happen. That's happened with Joe Abercrombie before, mm -hmm. where people have called him out for, you know, the sexualized violence and the women characters in his original trilogy. And he's come in and said... Yeah, that was actually really bad. I was a first-time writer, and I did some really messed up things. And like, all I can do is go forward and try and make it better. And just to still have his fans come after this person. Right. When the author himself is like, no, I did mess up. I think it's really hard for a lot of people to, to tell the difference between, hey, this thing you said, or this thing you like, or this thing you wrote has some in it, as opposed to, I think you are racist. Right. And people automatically jump to that, that second one. And it's like, no, we live in a racist society. These things are going to seep into all of our works because that's the society we live in. But I'm not calling you racist necessarily for writing this. I'm saying your reaction to when I say this, though, will probably <laughs> tell me if you're racist or not. Yeah. Because if your reaction is, to immediately go to like me not knowing anything about people of color and da da da. That's something that tells me something as opposed to authors who will go, Oh, I must've, uh, I must've messed up. I'm really sorry. There's an author. He wrote a book that's like sort of a pirate fantasy book. And one of the main characters is a black woman. And he talked about how, you know, I wanted to make this black woman, look like this because I didn't want her to be like the over-sexualized black woman that we see in most fictions. I wanted her to be queer so that like it wasn't her as a subservient uh, romantic relationship for this white man, da-da-da. And then someone was like, see, but by doing all that, you sort of shunted her into the mammy role mm -hmm. where she doesn't have sexuality and she's taking care of him for nothing in return. And he was like, I did not see that. I am so sorry. He's like, I have to take this criticism right. that this black woman has given me because she knows better than I do. And I was that automatically made me go, you know what? I'm going to read your next book mm -hmm. because I appreciate that you took that in and were like, okay, that's something I obviously need to work on. And I don't think people get that, that if you react in that way, you actually gain readers who might not have read you before. Yeah. Because now in their mind, instead of you just being, oh, this person has had some racial problems and they're not reacting well, I don't want to touch their stuff. You're like, oh, this person is trying to grow as a writer and as a person. I'm interested in what they write next. I just really think it's about listening and being aware. And I, I think that the for me as a writer, 
Mm -hmm. I never think that my books are perfect, especially when I go back late. I'm always like, oh, I could have done this. I could have done that. Because I think that as a writer, you should always be improving. Mm -hmm. You should never look back on your past book and be like, that is the best book ever written and nothing will top it. You have to be able to move forward and change and be better because that's how you keep an audience. Like no one, well, some people want to read the same story over and over. I read a whole lot of David Eddings when I was 12. Thank you very much. Oh my God. (laughs) Me too. We could have a whole conversation about David Eddings. I read the Illinium, the Tamuli, uh-huh. the Bulgarian, the Melorian. Like, I read all of it. And it wasn't until I reread it later that I was like, ooh, there's some problems with the brown people all being evil in this, aren't there? There, there really are. And the, uh, what was it, the, the, the Nissians who are all... Oh, my God. All on the, the and like, extremely effeminate. The one matriarchal culture. The one matriarchal culture are drugged out assassins who live in the swamp. And I was yep. just like, oh, what are you doing? But also, like, that was the same book over and over again. Like, to the point yeah, that... totally. To the point that the characters were having conversations about, haven't we done all of this before? <laughs> yes. You know, for some people, and you can find that really comforting. But for me, I don't mind seeing the same, like, hero story, like, the same basic Hero Rises story, but the stuff around it has to be different. Yeah. And I think that you could write, you know, 50 Hero Rising stories. That could be all you do with your writing career. And as long as you're growing between each book, each book is going to be different. Yeah. And I think that's what we, what people need to realize is, like, a lot of these criticisms are not like, I hate you and think you shouldn't write ever again. It's, hey, I think you have potential. This is a problem you might want to look to in the future. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I don't feel like criticizing someone if I have no investment in them whatsoever, because then why do I care? Yeah. Generally, I'll criticize people when I'm like, God, I see so much potential here. I think you could do so, such amazing things, but this part sort of twigged me. Each episode closes with a memory of a significant book, the right book at the right time, an interesting find, or just something that stuck around. An author that I love, I don't think they've ever written a book I didn't love, Martha Wells. Okay. Who I believe should be so much more well-known than she is. But her current series is about shape-shifting, shape-shifting bisexual polyamorous flying lizard people. Matriarchal. <laughs> I love it so much. I have reread this series so many times. It's so good. But the book that first hooked me onto her is called Wheel of the Infinite. Okay. And uh, it's a standalone book, and I adore it. It centers like an older black woman who's, I think, in her 60s, who has magical power and is a priest of some sort, but you realize there's something off about it. And it's her encountering a young strapping 30 year old white warrior who instantly falls in love with her and is like, I'm going to follow you around and protect you. And she's like, I know how to do this. I've had three husbands before. We're not playing around with this. And he's just like, "Mm, I'll just follow you around and basically follows her around like a puppy dog until they solve the mystery of like her God and what went down and what went down with her previous husbands. But I just loved seeing this older woman centered in this book uh-huh. who had been through everything, who had 
done everything and was basically like, oh, I don't have time for all of you. And it was such a new perspective. And yeah, I just, I love that book. It's, it's amazing. Wonderful. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Cabbages and Kings. Please let me know what you think of the show. On the website, cabbagesandkings.audio, there's a feedback form. Or just go ahead and email contact at cabbagesandkings.audio. The show is on Twitter at KingCabbageCast. Let me know what you enjoyed, what books you're reaching for now, and what I can do to make the show better. The website also has a link to the RSS feed for the show, which you can also find on iTunes or wherever fine podcasts are aggregated. Until next time, enjoy your reading.